Hello and welcome to this month's Amnesty International podcast. In this edition, we look at the ongoing discussions on a global arms trade treaty. What role do governments have to play, especially as the crisis in the Middle East and North Africa continues? We want an effective arms trade treaty. We want a bulletproof arms trade treaty. And on International Women's Day, what progress has been made since its inception 100 years ago? We're not going to change the sort of systemic and entrenched gender inequality without all of us understanding that it actually hurts all of us. We will then be hearing from Amnesty International's Marek Maczynski on the important work Amnesty's been doing on the protection of war crimes witnesses in Croatia. But first, the killings and injuries of peaceful demonstrators in the Middle East and North Africa, with arms supplied from many countries, shows the present lack of strict controls on arms that are often used to harm innocent citizens. Amnesty and other campaigners were at the United Nations to ensure arms are not supplied to anyone who would use them for gross human rights abuses. My name's Brian Wood. I coordinate the arms control work at Amnesty International. And I'm here in New York at the headquarters of the United Nations in order to speak with governments about the International Arms Trade Treaty. We want an effective arms trade treaty. We want a bulletproof arms trade treaty. In 2006, Amnesty International and other organizations managed to persuade the governments to set up a treaty, and since then, there have been uh, negotiations and deliberations. Now we've got to the point where the governments are beginning to put their treaty text on the table. But what would the scope of an effective arms trade treaty be? If your aim is to prevent the use of conventional weapons to commit or facilitate serious crimes against people, what needs to be included? Retired Brigadier General Mujahid Alam from Pakistan, who has served the UN in the DRC and Kosovo. The transportation services, the financial services and the brokering services, uh, without which the illicit or illegal trafficking of weapons cannot be uh, carried out. Uh, we have found in our investigations uh, with the three UN investigative panels that brokers have played a very, very important role, a very important and negative role, a very destructive role actually uh, in, the, in the trafficking of weapons. And it is extremely important that brokering services, they need to be registered, they need to be controlled, and they need to be regulated. Technically known as the scope of the arms trade treaty, it specifies both the amount of equipment and types of transactions to be regulated. Dr Colin Roberts, a former UK police firearms officer who now works at Cardiff University's Police Science Institute. So munitions, CS, 38mm CS gas canisters, uh, now, at the moment, those kinds of projectiles, if they're for police internal um, use, aren't actually included within the scope of the treaty. So, again, it's one of the things we've been trying to, to talk about, is the weapons within the category of the scope being military, police or paramilitary, uh, and that's either designed or adapted for that purpose. And I know it sounds very kind of legalese, but it it's to try and widen out that scope so there aren't great big loopholes in it that um, end up with these materials being shipped around the world under covers of uh, questions around national security. 
100 years ago, more than a million people marched in streets across Europe on the first International Women's Day. But after 100 years, what progress has been made? I think what's fascinating is both the combination of how many of the things that women are fighting for now were exactly why women took to the streets 100 years ago and, and, and created International Women's Day. And there has been progress, indubitably, but what is so clear is how uneven that process has been. And that's a combination of geography. There are areas of the world where women have much more equality than in other areas of the world. But I think when you look back at 100 years ago and then you look at what are the protests that are going on in places like the Middle East and North Africa region, women want the right to vote, for their work to be respected and recognized, and obviously to be paid for the work that they do. And again, what we see is women are generally working in the informal economy. They don't have labor rights protections. And they, even in countries that have an equal pay act, for instance, like the, the England does, you still see pay differentials between men and women. So that's not changed. Another issue that's come up very much is women wanting to control their own bodies. And this goes to both the issue of where we see how they don't, which is where there's violence against women, but also the, the, really the demand that they be seen as fully autonomous human beings who should decide if and when to marry, whom to be involved with, how many children to have. And again, that's something that women were fighting for 100 years ago and is something that we're still struggling for now. A lot has changed in the last 100 years, and yet many of the same problems remain. In many countries, government commitments to reforms have lagged behind needs. Discrimination still cuts deeply across societies, leaving a trail of inequality in its wake. The interesting thing is that when we talk about women's right and women's equality, we often get pushed back about this is our culture or our tradition. And yet when you really look at what we mean by culture and tradition, actually what you see is sort of taking something that is actually quite dynamic. Societies change all the time. There's nothing static about them. But when a group of people come to power who want to ensure that women are kept in a disadvantaged position, they suddenly claim a culture and then they ossify it. They try to say this is how it's always been and this is how it will always be. We absolutely need to challenge that. I think one of the things that we should be doing is celebrating the young women in the Middle East and North Africa region. One of the things that's been really amazing about what we've seen is young women who are not just taking to the streets with the other protesters, but who are actually leaders among the youth in the ways that they're communicating their desire for change. And again, they're not just talking about ending the inequality that women and girls experience there. They're talking about dismantling a system that is repressive to all people. Change is only going to happen when we all stand together to bring it about. And in fact, that's another lesson that we can take from what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa. It's been all elements of society coming together to demand change. And we're not going to change the sort of systemic and entrenched gender inequality without all of us understanding that it actually hurts all of us. I think that often gets lost in the conversations about it. And because it hurts all of us, we need to stand together to fight it together. And he told me, I've killed your brother. What do you want? What can you do about it? The determination of witnesses to tell the truth has made it possible to prosecute many war criminals from the conflict in the former Yugoslavia. 
The International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague prosecuted many high-profile cases, but hundreds still remain unresolved and will have to be dealt with in domestic courts. However, witnesses in Croatia have been threatened, intimidated or even killed. Amnesty International's Marek Maczynski. Milan Leva was a member of the Croatian army and he was very committed to the idea of the defense of the country. And he was an insider. He was somebody who knew a lot about what happened in Gospić. He knew a lot about the crimes, who committed them. He documented them. You know, he was working hard to make sure that victims have access to justice. And he decided to, to tell people about what happened. Milan's wife Gordana remembers how hard it was for her husband to tell the truth. We had a lot of threats. For example, they threw a bomb into our old house. There were incidents when we travelled. We even had a traffic incident where a military truck hit us. I think it was probably trying to kill us. Unfortunately, before he was able to give his testimony in the court, he was killed. And he was killed exactly because of this reason, that he was so outspoken about those crimes. And all of that was lost with his death, with the murder. He left his wife, he left his son, and probably many victims of war crimes. Stepan Mesic, former president of the Republic of Croatia. I think that the work of the Hague Tribunal has helped people in Croatia to realize that defending your country is one thing, that a legitimate right to defense is one thing, but a war crime must be condemned by the local legal system, the public and of course the tribunal in The Hague, and is another thing entirely. The government sent state representatives to the funeral. They were sent by President Mesic himself. They came to the funeral and made speeches saying that the murder would be solved, that it was unacceptable, and those responsible would not get away with it. But it was never mentioned again after the funeral. It has been 11 years and Milan Levar's killers have still not been punished. War crimes witnesses are still afraid to speak out and victims and their families are still suffering. If you have prosecutors who are not able or who are not trained to investigate and prosecute cases of war crimes, then no matter whether you are Serb or Croat, probably this case is going to fail. If you consider how many war crimes, hundreds and hundreds of war crimes, remain unresolved, and if you consider how little they are able to do every year to prosecute them, which is only 18 cases per year, well, then it actually shows you that there is very little commitment, very little political commitment to deal with the past. You can take action. Go to www.amnesty.org and write to the Chief State Prosecutor, urging him to address the issue of unresolved war crimes in Croatia. Also on the website, you'll find further information about the issues in this month's podcast and more. Thanks for listening.